Biden has an oil leak, Trump has a reality leak, and guess what? No more debates. Finally, some good news on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge. Cause they're the ones to lead the USA Thanks for joining us and welcome to episode 349 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. It was a debate insofar as the first one was a food fight in a cesspool. The new rules that allowed the candidates to answer a question for two minutes without interruption was a success. And the moderator, NBC's Kristen Welker, asked great questions. But if you were looking for a vision of a second term for Donald Trump, you didn't hear it. Nearly every question asked of the president was answered with an attack or an insult directed at Joe Biden or Barack Obama or both. Not to mention an exaggeration or an untruth. And even when Biden had time to respond, Trump always had to have the last word, going well over his allotted time, despite the best efforts by Welker. If you rated the debate on which candidate made the most effective arguments, it was pretty much a tie. Neither really helped or hurt his cause, unlike Trump's car wreck in the first debate. But when asked, for example, for an assessment on how he's handled the COVID-19 epidemic, Trump pretty much divorced himself from reality, talking about how everyone expected 2 million people to die, that while the virus may have spiked in some areas, they're now gone, that Dr. Fauci was wrong a lot, and that a vaccine is ready and will be available within weeks, which is not what scientists are saying. And he added this. It will go away, and as I say, we're rounding the turn, we're rounding the corner. It's going away. This was Biden's response. 220,000 Americans dead. If you hear nothing else I say tonight, hear this. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I'm, I take no responsibility initially, anyone who's responsible for that many deaths should not remain as president of the United States of America. Let me follow up with you before we move on to our next section. President Trump, this week you called Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's best-known infectious disease expert, quote, a disaster. You described him and other medical experts as, quote, idiots. If you're not listening to them, who are you listening to as you fight this? I'm listening to all of them, including Anthony. I get along very well with Anthony. But he did say, don't wear masks. He did say, as you know, this is not going to be a problem. Uh, I think he's a Democrat, but that's okay. He said, this is not going to be a problem. And so it went. With nearly every question from Welker, Trump's response was to blame the Obama-Biden administration on the economy, on immigration, on China, on North Korea. And even when Welker brought up the 545 children separated from their parents and who are still separated in cages... Trump somehow tried to pin it on the previous administration. Mr. President, your administration separated children from their parents at the border, at least 4,000 kids. You've since reversed your zero-tolerance policy, but the United States can't locate the parents of more than 500 children. So how will these families ever be reunited? Children are brought here by coyotes and lots of bad people 
cartels, and they're brought here, and they used to use them to get into our country. We now have as strong a border as we've ever had. We're over 400 miles of brand new wall. You see the numbers, and we let people in, but they have to come in legally, and they come in through. But America. how we reunite these kids you, with their families? Let me just tell you, Mr. President. they built cages. You know, they used to say, "I built the cages," and then they had a picture in a certain newspaper. And it was a picture of these horrible cages. And they said, look at these cages. President Trump built them. And then it was determined they were built in 2014. That was him. Do you they have a plan cages. to reunite the kids? Yes, we're working families? on it very, we're, we're trying very hard. But a lot of these kids come out without the parents. They come over through cartels and through coyotes and through gangs. Vice President Biden, let me bring you into this conversation. Quick response and then another question to you. These 500 plus kids came with parents. They separated them at the border to make it a disincentive to come to begin with. Bay, real tough. We're really strong. And guess what? They cannot, it's not coyotes didn't bring them over. Their parents were with them. They got separated from their parents. And it makes us a laughing stock and violates every notion of who we are as a nation. Let me ask you a follow-up question. They did it. We changed the policy. Your response they to did that? It. We, we changed. did not. They built the cages. The, they, who, who built the cages, let's, Joe? Let's talk about what who we're built talking the cages. About. Let's Joe. talk about what we're talking about. What happened? Parents were ripped. Their kids were ripped from their arms and separated. And now they cannot find over 500 sets of those parents, and those kids are alone, nowhere to go, nowhere to go. It's criminal. It's criminal. Let me ask Kristen, you about I will say this. They went down. We brought reporters, everything. They are so well taken care of. They're in facilities that were so clean. But some of them haven't been reunited good. But just ask one question. Who built the cages? I'd love you to ask him that. Who built the cages? Trump's fixation on Hunter Biden didn't seem to get very far. And when he began rambling about corruption and emails without connecting the dots, it was in a language that only Fox News and Rudy Giuliani were familiar with. And somehow Rudy Giuliani may not be the best character witness these days. I go to America! One surprise is that the issue of packing the court didn't come up. Biden was having trouble addressing what his views were on court packing, and Republicans had been claiming that he would succumb to pressures from the left. The issue had been out there for days. Finally, Biden, in an interview with 60 Minutes that will be aired on Sunday, said he would appoint a bipartisan commission to look at the issue. I should tell you that we have an interview coming up on court packing that was done before Biden announced his commission plan. If Biden had a weak moment during the debate, it was towards the end when he took Trump's bait and said he would transition the closing down of the oil industry. He said that over time it should be replaced by renewable energy. Trump seized on what he perceived as an opening, basically saying, did you hear that, Texas? Did you hear that, Pennsylvania? Biden later tried to qualify his remarks, saying we need to stop giving subsidies to the oil industry and instead focus on protecting the environment. And in any event, this would not happen right away. But between Biden's comments on oil, as well as his messages about fracking, the Democrat may have put his lead in Pennsylvania in some jeopardy. But ultimately, with 12 days to go before the election, it's hard to make the case that any minds were changed. 45 million Americans have already voted. And for a president who has yet to show a successful strategy in combating the virus after more than 220,000 deaths and counting, 
he probably needed more than a debate to turn things around. Joe Biden has basically been running a pretty disciplined campaign. For someone who, for much of his political career, has been known as a walking gaffe machine, the former vice president has kept his mistakes to a minimum with his focus on the policies and rhetoric of Donald Trump. But there has been one issue he has let get out of hand, whether he would pack the court should he win the presidency. Democratic progressives have been fuming for years at Republican tactics when it comes to filling judicial vacancies. The GOP, with its Senate majority, held up countless judicial nominations during the Obama presidency. And once Trump came into office, there were nearly 200 vacancies for him and Mitch McConnell to fill. That's not including Obama's Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland that McConnell refused to vote on, a political power play move that could backfire on the GOP senators next month. So the left has been arguing that the only way to get around the Republican tactics would be for President Biden to expand the court once he's in office and the Democrats get a Senate majority. Biden has been vague about his plans. Here's part of his conversation with ABC's George Stephanopoulos during last week's town hall meeting. I have not been a fan of pack co- uh, court packing because I think it just generates what will happen. Every Whoever wins, it just keeps moving in a way that is inconsistent with what is going to be manageable. So you're still not a fan? Well, I'm not a fan. I don't say I, it depends on how this turns out. If they vote out before the election, you are open to expanding the court? I'm open to considering what happens from that point on. You know, you said so many times during the campaign, all through the course of your career, it's important to level with It is, American but George, if I, if I say, no matter what answer I gave you, if I say it, that's the headline tomorrow. It won't be about what's going on now, the improper way they're proceeding. But don't voters have a right to know where you they stand? They do have a right to know where they stand, and they'll have a right to know where I stand before they vote. So you'll come out with a clear position before Election Day? Yes, depending on how they handle this. Did that sound clear to you? Me neither. Regardless, when this issue came up, I immediately thought of Jeff Schessel. He's the author of Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt versus the Supreme Court, a most comprehensive and fantastic book that explored the attempt by FDR to expand the Supreme Court in 1937 because the conservative justices were impeding his New Deal from going forward. It ended in a big defeat for FDR, but only in the short run. And I'm wondering if there were lessons from back then that may apply today. So, Jeff Schessel, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me. Before we get into what Joe Biden might do once he gets into office regarding court packing, remind us what President Roosevelt tried to do during his second term. What President Roosevelt tried to do was to increase the number of justices on the Supreme Court from nine, where it was and where it is today, uh, to, to 15. Actually, what he had said was that any justices over the age of 70 who refused to retire uh, would essentially invite another justice onto the court um, to sit beside them and help them get their work done. The implication was that these older men were incapable of getting their work done efficiently. So if none of the older men on the court uh, retired, 
then there would be an instant addition of six more justices to the court. It didn't escape anybody's notice that what the, what this would do overnight was rebalance the court ideologically. In, in other words, getting getting away from the conservative bent of the court and being more sympathetic to FDR's New Deal programs. Exactly. The, the court at that time in the 1930s had been a, a powerful conservative force in American life for really about a half century or so. And uh, it was stocked at that time with some very old and very conservative men. Now, I should say that the oldest among them was not at all a conservative. Uh, Justice Brandeis was the oldest man on that court. But there was a sense in the 1930s that these were 19th century men who held on to a 19th century ideology that really was becoming an obstacle to the New Deal, um, which is very much what conservatives wanted it to be. They wanted an obstacle to the New Deal. And there was none in the Congress during that period because Roosevelt had overwhelming support not only in the country but in both houses of Congress. So he was essentially able to do whatever he wanted to do. And on the right, the hope was that the court would stand in his way. And in fact, that's what it did for much of his first term. The court knocked down most of the major pillars of of the New Deal in 1935-1936 and created a sense of constitutional crisis in the country. So that when Roosevelt was reelected in a landslide in November of 1936, he moved very quickly after that, after his inauguration, to do something about the Supreme Court. The fight had been brewing for four years, and it was finally time in his view to act. Now, I mentioned in the intro that it, was, it, it turned out to be a big defeat. The Senate wouldn't go along with it. it, it, it you know, he basically had to withdraw that idea. But, but is it fair to say that eventually he got what he wanted with the court? Well, he very much got what he wanted in the end in the court um, in that in the middle of this court fight, and actually it helped to bring the court fight to an end, the court switched. It's the famous switch in time that saved nine, as they put it at the time, and, and that you can find in the, in the history books, that in the spring of 1937, as the fight over the court packing bill was raging in the Senate, uh, the court actually began to uphold progressive legislation at the state level. It began to uphold New Deal legislation. And suddenly there was no reason to pack the court anymore. Roosevelt kept up the fight because he had invested a lot of political capital in it, and he also didn't believe that the court was going to continue to uphold the New Deal once the threat of court packing had been lifted. Um, but in fact, once the bill was defeated, the court actually never knocked down another piece of New Deal legislation. The composition of the court started to change very quickly. And by the time Roosevelt died in 1945, eight of the nine justices on the court had been appointed by him. There are some advantages to having been elected president four times. I can't think of any president since FDR who considered expanding the court. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. No, no president has ever considered packing the court uh, in the 80-plus years uh, since, since Roosevelt failed to do it. Um, that has always stood out as his biggest, biggest political failure. And this is a very successful president, a very successful politician, and, and this is a mark on his record. And so Roosevelt, uh, having failed in, in the effort to pack the court, um, has really served as a warning to all subsequent presidents to not only think twice uh, about doing something like this, but just simply not to do it at all. You've heard the argument from many Democrats why uh, Biden should pack the court, that Senate Republicans blocked Obama's judges and uh, it gave Trump dozens and uh, dozens and dozens to fill. Uh, they blocked Merrick Garland. And they, and they say it was actually the GOP that was engaging in court packing.
What's your response both to McConnell's tactics and what the Democrats want to do to to remedy the situation? Well, I I think uh, Mitch McConnell's tactics have have been extreme. They've been a break from uh, historical precedent, and they have shattered any sense of uh, bipartisan civility when it comes to Supreme Court nominations. Now, I don't want to overplay that. Um, this has been a battleground for really most of the last 30, 40 years. Um, uh, the, the fight over the Bork nomination in 1987 was not the first battle over Supreme Court nominations. So again, one shouldn't get too sentimental about how things used to be. And at the same time, there have been norms, there have been practices, there have been understandings that have guided the way this works. And so when Justice Scalia died in, in February of 2016 and President Obama had almost a full year left as president, for Mitch McConnell to step forward and say that the Senate would deny the president his prerogative, his constitutional prerogative, to fill that seat with a moderate, by the way, I mean, just looking at it from an ideological perspective, it, it absolutely shattered any sense that um, uh, Supreme Court nominations could ever be anything but a raw uh, and naked power play. And that was followed. right now, right? Absolutely. And then that was followed um, two years later by McConnell pushing uh, the, the Kavanaugh nomination through despite credible claims of sexual assault. And it was followed uh, this year, followed right now in the present tense by the fact that in, in, in direct opposition to everything that they said in 2016, the Republicans in the Senate are desperately trying to push the Barrett nomination through so her place can be secured before an election that might actually be contested before the Supreme Court. So uh, the, the, the norms have been shattered, and it's not any wonder, actually, that Democrats and progressives feel that simply to sit back and, and hope that um, by, by waiting quietly for the next justice to retire, they're going to restore uh, order as it, as it once existed. Um, it is not surprising that they are reaching for a blunt instrument, and that is what court packing is. I mean, last year, you know, Biden was asked about packing the court, and he said, we'll live to rue that day. And that reminds me of when Harry Reid, back when he was Senate Majority Leader, decided to end the filibuster for some federal court judge nominations, and that blew up in his face, you know, when McConnell and the Republicans took over in 2014. So I'm just wondering if the Democrats expand the court when they're in power, I mean, what's to keep the Republicans from doing the same when they take power? It's a a cycle that just doesn't seem to end. That's exactly right. That was one of the arguments that was made against it in 1937 when Roosevelt proposed it, that what was going to stop the next president from trying to correct the balance by adding a a bunch more justices. So you'd move from a court of nine to a court of 15, and then the next Republican president would sort of jack that up to a Supreme Court of 21. Pretty soon you'd have a a kind of mini legislature there in, in the Supreme Court building. And so the the, the, the idea of a cycle of retaliation, of retribution, was one of the things that actually helped stop the initial court packing plan. And so it's not surprising that we heard that from, from Joe Biden, who really is an institutionalist. I mean, he has a lot of respect for, for all the institutions of government, which is one of the, I think, principal arguments for, for his candidacy is to, to again, uh, restore a sense of the sanctity of the rule of law, again, to respect science, again, to respect... Um, uh, you know, all of our governmental institutions. And so it, 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 he is an unlikely candidate for, for a court packing plan. 
And yet he is running for president as a Democrat in an environment where Democrats are rightly outraged by what Republicans have done to seize power, not only on the Supreme Court, but across the federal judiciary, as you mentioned. And so he's trying to navigate a Democratic electorate that is ready for a big fight. And I think to your point earlier, he's not done it particularly skillfully. I think he told us during the primaries what his actual position was, but he has um, he's wavered a little bit in light of uh, what, what's going on with the Barrett nomination. And, and I don't think he's – I think I agree with your assessment. He's been very deft and very skillful and very disciplined over the course of this campaign. But when it has come to this question, uh, he's, he's, um, his uncertainty um, has been all too apparent. Joe Biden is running right now. It appears very successfully for president in focusing on the two biggest issues in the country right now, or the three, which is COVID, the economy, and uh, and and uh, concerns uh, about systemic racism. And so, the, the more that um, the the other side and the press are able to keep the focus on whether or not he's going to pack the court, is is a big distraction for him. You recently wrote in The New Republic that expanding the court would, quote, plunge it into politics. Is it fair to say that since the court decided the Bush-Gore election in 2000, it's been plunged into politics? Well, absolutely. Actually, the the point I was trying to make in the New Republic piece is that the, the the traditional argument against court packing back again in the 1930s is that you're going to make this a political institution. You're going to make it a political football. And the point that I was trying to make is, look, it already is, and it has been for a long time. And as the political scientists have been telling us, there have been a lot of studies done on this question, the, the partisan alignment of the justices is more extreme than it has ever been before. You used to have Republican-appointed justices who would uh, become sw- swing justices. And, David and who Souter. would sort of migrate. Right? Absolutely. David Souter. Earl well, Warren. Absolutely. And, 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 and Justice Blackman and Justice Brennan, right. these are all Republican appointees. But the outcry um, in the 80s into the 90s on the right was no more suitors. No more suitors. You remember that, yep. that line. And and they have seen to it that there would be no more suitors. Um, they have a huge machinery that brings up these very ideological justices through the law schools, through the Federalist Society, onto the federal bench. And so when an Amy Coney Barrett comes along, there's not a tremendous amount of mystery about what they're going to decide on big questions. And that doesn't mean that ju- justices can't surprise you. It doesn't mean that, for example... Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, both Trump appointees, have agreed on everything. They haven't. But these are pretty safe bets. They are getting these nominations because they are very safe bets. And the goal is never to be surprised by a decision issued by somebody that you've put on the court. And the right is, frankly, much more effective at doing that um, than, than the left has been. There's a, there's a greater degree of ideological sameness that is produced by these institutions on the right. One gets the feeling, I don't know if it's fair enough, but one gets the feeling that should Joe Biden get elected, there will be tugs at him from the progressive left uh, on a number of things, uh, especially court packing. If you were giving advice, if you were a, a Biden advisor, what what say you? Well, if I were a Biden advisor, and 
to be perfectly clear, I'm not. Um, but if anybody asks my opinion, I would say essentially what I argued in, in the, the New Republic piece that you mentioned, which is that uh, it would be, uh, I think, from a political and a policy perspective, disastrous to launch into a court-packing fight at the beginning of, of his term for a couple of reasons. The main one is that, at best, if the Democrats really run the table, at best, Joe Biden's going to have a, a margin of, you know, a few votes in the Senate. And that would be a great outcome for, for Democrats. But it's not the kind of margin that FDR had in 1937 when out of 96 senators, back when there were only 96 senators, 76 of them were Democrats, 76 out of 96. And, and even Roosevelt didn't get what he wanted in that case. So Joe Biden, with a margin of a few votes, is going to have to be very careful about what he's asking Democrats to do. And it is far more important in the present moment to deal with the pandemic. It is far more important to deal with the economic desperation in the country as these small businesses are struggling or, or going out, out of business. And, and right now, the, the federal government has stopped providing any, any kind of assistance. And there are other things, certainly, that we could add to that list that have that degree of urgency or something approaching it. And so the idea that Joe Biden is going to or should launch into a divisive court packing fight in his first 100 days or even in his first year in office seems to me it would be an act of, of self-destruction. And I, I don't think for a minute that, that, that he would do it, frankly. I think he's too savvy uh, a, a politician to think about spending his capital on that. The other aspect that I would add to that is that that would be, that would be a preemptive strike against the court. That would be a strike against a court that has not yet even had a chance to strike down anything that Joe Biden has passed or, or, or signed into law. Now, we know, to my point a minute ago, we know what this court is going to do. This is not a court that is going to be friendly to progressive legislation. This is not a court that is going to be friendly to civil rights or to voting rights. And yet they haven't done it yet in a Biden presidency. And so I think that he's just going to have to see how this plays out. And I think if, if the conservatives on the Supreme Court overplay their hand, as many people expect them to do, and a series of bad decisions on reproductive rights, on voting rights, on a whole manner of things come raining down from this court, then I think there is going to be a, a groundswell of support, which there isn't right now, for, for packing the court or some other measure of court reform, for example, term limits or age limits. And I think the politics of this will be very different two or four years from now. Jeff Schessel is a historian and author of Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt versus the Supreme Court. Jeff, it was great having you back on the program. Great being back. Thanks so much, Ken. Supreme Court, now where you let me go, dear. Supreme Court, now where you let me go, dear. Supreme Court, now where you let me go. That's why I write this letter, because I pray it gets better. Dear Supreme Court, now where you let me go. Dear Supreme Court, now where you let From the beginning of the COVID virus, Donald Trump has found it quite useful to launch attacks on individual reporters rather than offer real news during his press briefings. Here he is in March, back when the U.S. death toll was 200, rounding against NBC's Peter Alexander. What do you say the Americans were scared, though? I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who were sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? 
Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism and uh, the same with NBC and Comcast. I don't call it I don't call it Comcast. I call it Comcast. Let me just ask for whom you work. Let me just say something that's really bad reporting. And this was April with CBS's Paula Reed. The argument is that you bought yourself some time and you didn't use it to prepare hospitals. You didn't use it to ramp up testing. Right you're now, so, you're so, you're so disgraceful. It's so disgraceful the way you say that. Let, let me just, listen, dead. I just How went over it. You know you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it, is fake. Clearly, it was not going to stop. Finally, in August, one reporter tried something different. This was S.B. Date the senior White House correspondent for HuffPost, at a press briefing. Mr. President, after three and a half years, do you regret at all all the lying you've done to the American people? On all the what? All the lying, all the dishonesties. That who has done? You have done. Uh, Tens of thousands. Yeah, go ahead, please. please. Trump looked stunned. No reporter had ever approached him that way at a news conference. Date is also the author of a new book, The Useful Idiot, how Donald Trump killed the Republican Party with racism and the rest of us with coronavirus. Date is also an old friend. We were editors together at NPR. He's also worked at the AP, the Palm Beach Post, and the National Journal, and has written well-received biographies of Jeb Bush and Bob Graham. Sharish, uh, well, welcome to The Political Junkie. Ken, thanks for having me. Well, you know, I'll get to your new book in a minute, but I, I'm just so fascinated about this incident, and I wa- I've watched it on YouTube over and over and over again. So I want to talk to you about a little bit about your question to Trump. I think we both agree that every president lies, and perhaps President Trump lies more than most. But what led you to ask such a question at a press conference? Right. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing you say that most presidents lie. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with that. I, I think most presidents try to get out of answering questions in which the truth will make them look bad, right? So they'll dance around it. They'll answer a different question that they'd rather answer and so on. But most of them don't want to say something that's provably false because they like their credibility. They don't want to lose that because they feel it's valuable and important. And that's, a, I think, a difference, not in degree, but in kind between this president and every previous president that I've been, you know, uh, certainly paying attention to it as an adult in, in journalism, uh, Donald Trump lies every single day. And he's been doing it since he came down his escalator back in June of, of 2015. And, and for five years, frankly, I've been, wanting, I've been wanting to ask that question to him. And the first real chance I got was uh, that day in August in that press briefing. You remember, the person who really got at this best, I think, was Ted Cruz. It was May 3rd, 2016. It was the day of the Indiana primary. He was going to lose. And he called together his, the traveling press that came with him, right? And he said, look, all you reporters have been going around with me all this time. Now I'm going to really tell you what I think about Donald Trump, which, of course, raised the question that what the hell had, be, had he been saying you know, for the previous year during this campaign. But still, he laid into him. He said, that Donald Trump doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. If you hooked him up to a lie detector, he would give you three different answers to the same question morning, noon, and night. And each time he'd, be, he'd, he'd 
pass the lie detector test because he'd think at that moment he was telling the truth. He's a pathological liar, et cetera, at, at all. It's, you know, that, that was pretty gutsy for a guy whose father uh, worked with Lee Harvey Oswald. Exactly. I actually tried to ask him the same question back in uh, early on in the pandemic. And, you know, we had these same sort of situation in the, in the briefing room where there's a relative paucity of reporters. So I actually had a chance because he you know, likes to pick on uh, people who sometimes he hasn't called before. And I, I made the mistake of starting my question by prefacing it with a poll. I said, Mr. President, your credibility is very low. There was a new poll done by NPR. And that's as far as I got. He heard the word poll. He heard the word poll, and he was off to the races with fake polls. I've got better polls. Sleepy Joe, I'm winning Florida. I'm winning every state, on and on. And then he picked someone else. So lesson learned, right? Start with the question. No preface. Get right to it. And so in August, uh, I didn't think he was going to call on me because I thought he would remember me from the last time I tried to ask. In fact, I'd just seen him on the on the plane a few days earlier coming back from Texas. And when he saw me in the group of reporters, he hightailed it back to the front of the plane. So I figured, all right, well, you know, I'm, I'm never— He um, opened the window and jumped, right? <laughs> right. He left us with Ted Cruz, as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, so I thought, okay, well, I'm never going to ask any question of him ever, and that's fine. Uh, but that briefing came along. I was pool that day, and he ran out of people to ask, I guess. So he, he called on me. And, uh, you know, of course, I knew exactly what I was going to ask. And shockingly, he, uh, I guess at first, he, he, maybe he thought he misheard, so he asked me to repeat it. And then, and then, <laughs> then he asked me, well, who's lying? And uh, that puzzled me. Well, who do you think I'm going to be? Who <laughs> did he think I'm going to be asking about? And then I think he you know, didn't know what to say. So then he just went to somebody else, and that was that. But you know, I, I did some math. I mean, if we handle this like Germany, and that's not an unfair comparison. It, it's, a, it's a rich country with a, a reasonably advanced, incredibly, uh, in, in some ways, very advanced healthcare system. They have one-fifth, one-fifth the number of deaths per capita as we do. You know, so instead of having 220,000 deaths, we could have right now 45,000. And that's on him. And, you know, uh, people have started to notice, and that's why he's doing badly in the polls. Let me ask you, um, back to your, your famous, infamous question at the uh, news conference. I know that Trump haters loved that question and that Trump lovers hated it. But what kind of reaction did you get from your fellow White House reporters? Well, that's interesting because um, I got a lot of praise and a lot of thanks from a number of people. And I got some pushback saying, you were the pool reporter, you should have asked the question of the day. Um, and the question of the day, I guess, was uh, payroll tax, because that Trump had said something about the payroll tax. And at the time, you know, the White House had been pushing this idea that it should be suspended for a period of months and whatever. And, you know, look, I'm sorry. And, and I've been in their shoes before. I used to work for the Associated Press. So I know what the deadline pressures are. I know what the demands are. They want a story on this topic 600 words to move by five o'clock and all you, your job that day is to ask that one question and get that one quote to fill it in and send it off. I get that. And fortunately that's not my job anymore. And, but I will say that asking the president about the payroll tax is ridiculous because he doesn't understand how it works. He doesn't understand how the social security trust fund works. What does it matter? He's just going to say something different tomorrow. So that was why you know, I, I was not going to play that game of just asking whatever it is that people are writing about, because it doesn't matter with this president. 
You know, I think of again. I think over and over about the the fact that you asked that question, and sometimes I can't believe that you would ask such a question. But other times, probably most times, I think, why has no one asked Trump about this before? I mean, why don't reporters do that more often? What's their argument against them calling it out like you did? To be honest, it's they want uh, access to the top people in the White House. They want their calls returned. They want the opportunity of getting a one-on-one with the president in the Oval Office, right? That's what it is. And uh, I work for HuffPost. I know there's zero chance, zero, of me getting a sit-down with the president in the Oval Office, uh, given the history of HuffPost and Donald Trump going back before I even joined HuffPost. And back when they stuck all news about him in the entertainment section, which, honestly, if every other outlet in this country had done that, you know, we might be at a different place right now. But nonetheless... I don't have that concern. If you're giving up the ability to ask real questions in order to get that, you're not doing your job. You're failing your audience. You know, I'm trying to, I was trying to think of a moment in history when I've seen this kind of question before. And I think the, the closer it comes to me, this was, I don't know, I'm going to play a little piece of tape. This was ABC's Sam Donaldson, and he was addressing President Reagan during the Iran-Contra scandal in November of 86. Sir, if I may, the polls show that a lot of American people just simply don't believe you. That the one thing that you've had going for you more than anything else in your presidency, your credibility, has been severely damaged. Can you repair it? What does it mean for the rest of your presidency? But I, I can't think of anyone asking it as bluntly as you. You know, Trump looked a bit stunned for a second, and then, as you say, he went on to another reporter. Um, but what, what do you think it accomplished, if it accomplished anything? I don't know that it necessarily accomplished anything other than maybe to let him know and to let this White House know that we're not all going to play their game, right? Uh, We understand that he's lying, and we are going to make it clear to our audience that he's lying. And if if that means that you're not going to call me back anymore and give me your spin, so be it. You know, there's, there's enough other places to get actual facts. So I think it's good that and, – and, and by the way, since that, I think uh, Jonathan Carl has asked a very similar question about uh, – directly to the president. I think Paul Reed at, at, uh, at CBS has asked him a couple of times about why are you lying about this or that's not true. Why are you saying it? So you know, hopefully it's a trend, right? If, if one person asks, it's a, it's, a, it's a troublemaker. If two do it, it's – you know. But there's three, it's a movement. So let's see. <laughs> you know, um, you know, it's one thing. It's one thing again for the the president to lash out at reporters, as you say, with with Jonathan Carl and uh, and Peter Alexander, Paul, uh, Paul Reed, others. But there was also there was this incident. It was a Trump rally last month in Minnesota, where the president responded to the news that that uh, Ali Belshi, the, the MSNBC anchor, he was hit in the knee by a police rubber bullet during a protest over the death of George Floyd, and the president almost seemed like he was celebrating. What is happening? Well, it was, it was a bad thing when uh, Trump started repeating that uh, line about the press being the enemy of the people. You know, that phrase goes back a century and none of the people who have used it before have been good people, right? And, and yet Steve Bannon kind of taught it to him. This came from Bannon, who said, we need to start treating the media like the enemy, like they're the opposition, like they're the enemy of the people. That's where that came from. And he has continued. In fact, just the other day, 
he was uh, at a at a at a little gaggle under the wing of Air Force One, and he started yelling at a reporter for not covering Hunter Biden and accusing the reporter of being a criminal for doing this. Mm. A criminal. I mean, come on. I mean, what is wrong with you? This is totally out of bounds. And uh, I don't know what the answer is here. I mean, the, the WHCA ought to, ought to put out a statement that this is ridiculous and, and uncalled for and, uh, and wrong. But, you know, it, it goes back to people want to continue getting their calls returned. I'm just thinking about Savannah Guthrie during the Trump town hall. And what I thought was so magnificent about her, um, especially the part when she asked him about, you know, why in the world would, would he retweet a nutty post from a QAnon follower that <laughs> they write Barack Obama and they, they didn't kill Osama bin Laden, but instead they killed the body double and that Biden had the Navy SEAL team killed to cover it up. I mean, it sounds insane, and it's so insane that it really happened. Let me just play that piece of tape. Just this week, you retweeted to your 87 million followers a conspiracy theory that Joe Biden orchestrated to have SEAL Team 6, the Navy SEAL Team 6, killed to cover up the, the fake death of bin Laden. Now, why would you send a lie like that to your followers? It, you retweeted That was a retweet. That was a, an opinion of somebody, but, and that was a retweet. I'll put it out there. People can decide for themselves. I don't take a position. You're not like someone's crazy uncle who can just retweet whatever. That was a retweet, and I do a lot of retweets. And frankly, because the media is so fake and so corrupt, if I didn't have social media, I don't call it Twitter, I call it social media, I wouldn't be able to get the word out. And the word word is, is and you know what the word is? The word is very simple. We're building our country stronger and better than it's ever been before. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, the things that he says, the thing that he puts out on social media, they are the sort of thing that you'd expect your crazy uncle to say and which you try to ignore and move on and say, hey, you know, the weather's really cooling down, isn't it, this time? And, but, and he's not your crazy uncle, at least not my crazy uncle. Uh, he's the president of the United States, and his words still matter. And if we're to the point where the answer is just ignore him, then that's a problem. That is a big problem because he's in charge of the largest military in the world. And to have him just doing bonkers, crazy stuff, that's not something that is a, that's a good result of our, of our electoral system. And we need to figure out how that happened and make sure it never happens again. Well, we don't have much time to figure it out. And I was, I was thinking about that in reading your book, The Useful Idiot. You know, you t- the book talks a lot about how Trump failed the, con- the country with his response or the lack of the response with the coronavirus. Um, we know that 200,000 Americans have died under Trump's watch. We know that he has inflamed racial tension in the country. We know, you know he's cozied up to autocrats and dissed our allies, and, and you know he tried to get a foreign leader to come up with dirt on Joe Biden and all that stuff. We know his family, he and his family, have pocketed millions. Your book lays it all out. Uh, I guess my final question is, because I don't know if it's even answerable, is that why is the election seen as so close? I mean, what has happened to this country that the re-election of somebody like Donald Trump is a possibility? That's an excellent question. And the answer is most people don't follow any of this. And I, and I learned this firsthand. You know, it's, it's nice to get out of, of Washington once in a while. And up until the pandemic, I was doing that regularly, going out 
to states like Wisconsin and to Florida and to Arizona and talking to people. And you know what? They don't know anything about Donald Trump getting money from the federal government and putting it in his own pocket. They don't know anything about him uh, making sure to snag millions of dollars in donor money going to his campaign and sticking that in his own pocket. They don't know anything about that, and they don't care. They just want their life to be okay. They don't want to have to worry about things. They want their children to have a better life than they do, and that's not unreasonable. And so the first time that he really started getting the trouble, frankly, was when people could see with their own eyes that he, he himself, that Donald Trump's policies and Donald Trump's inability to focus was getting their neighbors killed and their parents sick and making it so that their kids couldn't go to school and they were out of a job. So that's when it hit home. That's when all the other stuff that they could have paid attention to but chose not to, all that stuff didn't matter but the coronavirus did because it was affecting their lives personally. So, you know, the answer to that is, you know, uh, democracy is not easy and people need to pay attention. And as I've said for years, if you're if your mayor or your school board member or your mosquito control board member was behaving the way Donald Trump was, you'd have gotten rid of him years ago. Right. Because those things affect your life you know, very closely and, and to a large, much larger extent, I think, than things that happen in Washington. Sharish Date is the senior White House correspondent for HuffPost. He's also the author of the new book, The Useful Idiot, How Donald Trump Killed the Republican Party with Racism and the Rest of Us with Coronavirus. Sharish, it was great and uh, depressing <laughs> having you on the program. <laughs> I'm not sure which is which. <laughs> Okay, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Lies, lies, I can't believe a word you say. Lies, lies, are gonna make you sad someday. That's it for this week's show. Remember, you can always find my political blog, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. The Political Junkie podcast is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Vote early if you can. And please stay safe. I'll see you soon. I'll make you sad someday.